Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour, and now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friends? Always a pleasure to have you joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. It's a very special episode this time around. We have a very special in-studio guest, David Becker, one of the most distinctive artists in the world of jazz. He is a guitarist, international performer, recording artist, producer, and music teacher. David, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for making the trip. It's my pleasure, Paul. It's an honor. Well, thank you. And in addition to doing the interview, we are going to have a bonus. You're going to be playing some songs for us. I am, yes. I brought my guitar, and I'll do a little bit of playing. So So there's a song of yours. It's called Brad's Blues. Right. This is, a, this is a new tune that's on an album that just came out with guitarist Brad Rebuchin, who used to play with Ray Charles, who's an old friend of mine. We did a record called For John, which is uh, dedicated to John Abercrombie. And this is a tune I wrote for Brad, and it's called Brad's Blues. All right. Here Let's hear it. Sounding good, David. Thank you. So tell us a bit about this record. Well, this record is one that's been in the works for probably 35 years. I've known Brad Rebuchin since I was uh, in my early 20s when I started the David Becker Tribune with my brother in L.A. And um, Brad was always uh, another guitar player in, in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles that was playing jazz. And we were not competitors, but we were sort of supporters of each other. He actually showed up to the very first DBT gig. And we would play together whenever we had the chance. And then over the years, as my career grew, Brad became a sideman for Ray Charles and some other people. And he would always say, yeah, we should do a record together. And I said, yeah, we should, because every time we played, there was a nice synergy happening. And so just about two years ago, we were playing at a NAM show in Los Angeles and Brad said, we should, we should definitely do a record. And I said, yeah, I'm going to put it on my calendar. So we got in the studio last July and recorded about four hours. I, I had written a song for John Abercrombie when he passed away. I was in Italy the day he passed away, and I was doing a concert. So I wrote this tune called For John. 
because I'd worked with John on the record, uh, the Attila Zoller tribute record, where Pat Metheny's on it and Jim Hall, a bunch of other people. And John and I were going to play together. We were going to do some concerts, and sadly, he passed away. So it made me reflect on John. And John was a big influence not only on me, but also Brad, because not just the way he played, but the way he played in the duo, his sensibility and things like that. And so we um, recorded that tune. We did one of John's tunes called Ralph's Piano Waltz. And then we did some improvising, which came out really nicely. I mean, it's um, we used titles that were based on some of John Abercrombie's either sense of humor or his nickname, for instance, when he was in Dreams was was Crumbles. That's what Randy Brecker called him. So we have a tune called Crumbles. And then we've got a tune that's called, um, as a matter of fact, we were trying to make money. And that story is that when I was a kid, my brother Bruce got uh, this record, uh, Timeless, which was John's first record. And the way he was exposed to it, his drum teacher, Freddie Gruber, who's uh, the famous uh, drum teacher, who taught a whole bunch of people, Dave Weckl and Steve Smith, as well as my brother. Um, my brother was kind of ranting and raving, I want to play with my brother and we want to make money and all this stuff. And Freddie blopped the needle down on the first track, which is a, a tune called Lungs, which is this really up-tempo, frenetic tune with Jan Hammer and Jack DeJanet, and said, you think these guys are trying to make money? So years later, we were at a, a jazz festival in Latvia, and I know John, and John was there, and Adam Nussbaum was there, and so we're hanging with Adam, and Bruce knows Adam. And, and so Bruce told him that story, and John had just flown in from somewhere, and we'd been at the festival for a couple of days. He looked pretty burnt out, and he just looked at Bruce and said, well, because he said, you know, I told him that story, I think these guys are trying to make money, and he said, oh, as a matter of fact, we were trying to make money. And so that just kind of tied the whole thing together. So, But I'm very happy with the record, and Brad and I um, also were able to get uh, John's uh, widow, Lisa um, involved to the point where she's very excited about the record and, and is very supportive of it. So, and we just actually got submitted for a Grammy nomination. So, I hope that we get some votes out there. So, congratulations. What are your recollections of John Abercrombie? John was a very funny fellow and he was a great guitar player. He just had a very interesting, dry sense of humor. And I was very fortunate to meet him kind of happenstancely when I was a kid in L.A. He was playing with his quartet, and uh, I had seen him with Ralph Towner doing a duo when I was a student at GIT, because GIT, when I was a student, I was there back in 1980 or 81, and they had guys every month or every every other week, it seemed like, you know, Steve Morse and, and Abercrombie and Towner, and, you know, um, Steve Lukather came. He was just, you know, in total, had their first record out. So when John came to the school, I don't think I spoke to him, but I actually went and saw him play. And I went up and I, you know, got the courage and said, hi, John, big fan, you know, a couple, couple of your records and stuff like that. And he was really nice. And uh, he said, you know, here's my number, you know, if I'm, you know, next time I'm in town or call me or whatever. So we sort of got to know each other a little bit. And then as my career started to grow, making records and touring, we ran into each other occasionally. Or I'd call him up, you know, if I was in New York or something. And and then um, in 2004, I think it was, or three, I was living in Germany and I was touring a lot in Germany and John happened to be over there. So we saw each other again and we had a chance to play. So we sat down and played together and it was nice. And John said, wow, this sounds great. You know, we, we should do something together. And I said, yeah, I would love to. So, you know, time went on and um, we ended up playing for a Joe DiOrio uh, memorial concert for Joe's birthday in New York at Birdland, along with Pat Martino. And um, again, the idea came up. So then when this record that I produced of Attila Zoller's music came to be, I thought of John right away because John knew Attila and was a big fan. And so I said, hey, you want to do a tune on the Attila record? And he said, absolutely. So um, we, I didn't, it's funny because on that rec, on that tune, I didn't play with John. I Bruce played drums and um, Michael Formanak played bass. But um, I played the very last chord <laughs> because there was a fade out and there was a chord missing. So I went in the studio and just plopped this chord down, which you can hear at the very end. But it was fun working with John because, uh, first of all, he wanted to do about 50 takes of the song. And we had limited time in the studio, but I just let him do it because I thought, you know. And and um, he just was a great human being. I mean, you could call him up anytime and and, uh, you know, he always made time for you. And I think he was probably one of the biggest influences on a lot of guitar players that didn't realize it because, you know, he came out of that, that Berkeley school and the Mick Goodrick kind of generation, uh, John Schofield as well. 
But John had a really great career recording because he did all of his records on ECM, and he got along very well with Manfred Eicher. In fact, I just ran into Manfred in uh, in Munich in the lounge, Lufthansa Lounge, and I've never met him. I, I knew a guy years ago from ECM, but I introduced myself and said, a friend of John's and blah, blah, blah. Oh, are you, where are you on tour? And he was asking me in these things. I didn't tell him about the CD because I didn't know we were going to have it in production at that point. But um, I may give Manfred a copy at some point. So. Already you've mentioned a lot of guitar players. Jim Hall, Pat Martino, Pat Matheny, John Schofield. I would be curious to know the guitarists that have had the biggest influence on you. The biggest influence on me would have to be um, as far as just getting my head straight of what I need to do for myself was Joe DiOrio because Joe was kind of my mentor when I was at GIT. And Joe and I did a record together back in 2005, which I always wanted to do, The Color of Sound. And that's probably some of the best playing that he and I have ever done. And Joe would tell you that as well. Um, sadly, Joe had a stroke right after that. So his career kind of you know took a back seat. But he still, he recovered, he still is teaching and, and, you know, still has a big influence on me. But as far as guitar players that I listened to as a kid, in the jazz genre, it started with Grant Green and Wes Montgomery and John, of course, John Abercrombie, because I heard that record at 16. You know, I was aware of guys like Lee Rittenauer and Larry Carlton, but I wasn't a big fan of their music. Not that there's anything wrong with it, it just didn't touch me the way that some of the other music did. I love Larry's playing and... We became label mates later on at MCA, um, and Lee, I've I've you know talked to a few times, and uh, but um, you know I'd have to say that when I was at GIT, I was listening to Joe play because he was there, and then Wes Montgomery because Joe knew Wes, and then I was also a fan of Schofield and Matheny, and that was early in their careers. You know, like I think Pat Matheny only had like three records or something, two or three records, and Schofield had one or two, and they were the younger guys that I knew had a connection to Wes and Jim Hall. And there's Joe DiOrio who knew Wes Montgomery and Wes was a huge fan. And then, you know, I was listening to Wes. So I got a good hybrid of, you know, the, the older guy, the, the living guy and the younger guys. And then of course, horn players were a big influence, Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Charlie Parker, Sonny Rollins, um, you know, trumpet players too. Cause I played trumpet before I played guitar. So, I, I had a Dizzy Gillespie record when I was like 12, you know, with um, with Mickey Roker and, and uh, Milt Jackson. And I got to see those guys play. I remember going to a club in L.A. and I was like, you know, four feet from Milt Jackson. So and I was hmm. the only white kid there. But that was a great experience. So those, yeah, I'd have to say those guitar players, plus Jack Wilkins, New York guy that, that I got to know later on as well. And you know, pretty much everybody that was on the radar of guitar players, then, because there weren't a lot of guitar players on the scene that were, you know, that were the ones that you needed to listen to. There's a handful. And, and of course, you know, if you go back to the Barney Kessels and the Tal Farlows, I got to see Tal Farlow play, also with Joe. And um, I just tried to absorb the history of, of that instrument and get as much of it as I could through whatever exposure I could get, records and, and live, you know. Well, David, would you be interested in playing another song sure. for the listeners? Yes, I'd be happy to. I'll play the title track of uh, a record that came out a couple of years ago, which is a solo record. It's called The Lonely Road, and this is the title track of that. So here we go.
ladies and gentlemen, David Becker. What a cool song. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's an interesting tune because uh, The Lonely Road was a record that I did um, a couple of years ago, and I actually recorded it uh, at Tom Lilly's home studio. Tom was a bass player that had played with the DBT for a while. He's on In Motion, and uh, it's also on a record called Germerica, which is was only released on DVD audio. I think it just came out digitally, though. And Tom had this um, guitar that was sitting in his his uh, studio, and we were just getting ready to record some stuff, and I was just going to do some acoustic stuff. I didn't know what I was actually going to do, but to improvise. And I picked up that guitar that I'd never played before, and the very first thing I played was... And I went, oh, I think I better record this. So I put that down, and then um, I wrote a little B section to it, and then I put it away. And then I went back and kind of assembled the melody and recorded all that in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. So, And then I had to figure out how I'm going to play it live, because it was sort of layered. But with the loop pedal, I've been able to create, you know, this little thing happening. And I played some piano on that, on the on the track. So if you hear the, the album version, it's it's similar, but it's a little different. But yet, it I, that version that I recorded, I think, is one I could never duplicate. So this live version has become its own thing. So... Would it be possible for you to put into words what the David Becker sound is? Oh, that's pretty hard. I guess, um, you know, musicians that have their own sound, and that's what everybody strives to have, is a reflection of who you are as a person. So I think if you hear me play, you should hopefully hear who I am as a guy. And what I have to say, what my little take is on the world of music, you know, everybody has a little place that they kind of lay their perspective of what this music that we call jazz or improvised music is. And hopefully I've written a little piece of that in my own right. Um, it's hard for me to really know because I'm inside of it, you know, but I do play for the fan that I am. So it's not that I'm trying to impress the guitar players. What I do is I just imagine what I like to hear as a fan, and I try to feed that. And I've been told that, you know, people can hear me play and they recognize it. So that's, I guess, I've, I've achieved that level of, you know, uh, personality that comes through. But that's really what it's all about. When you become an improviser, there's three stages. There's the first stage, which is kind of you imitate. And imitate doesn't mean you learn to play every John Schofield lick, you know, up and down the neck. You, you listen to your influences and you try to play what you hear. And then you assimilate, which means you make it your own. And after you can assimilate those ideas, then you can innovate and then start your own path of, uh, you know, whatever that is. And that's, uh, that takes a, a long time to get to that place. But, uh, Joe DiOrio once said to me, he said, you know, you may have had your influences, um, but you were always David Becker, and, and that's important. And that meant a lot to me to hear that from him. And that was years later after I had, you know, started playing and making records and stuff. Just because you make records doesn't necessarily mean that you've achieved, you know, the ultimate of what you're going to do, because you, you keep growing, you keep developing. So um, that's the good part. You know, there's more in store as you, as you continue to develop your ability to, to transmit your whatever that sound would be. Hmm. That makes sense. You know? So from what you're saying, it sounds like when you're performing or when you're composing a song, you're really thinking about the listener. Yeah. I'm th well, the listener is me. Mm. You know, it's less about me trying to, because I mean, you could sit there and say, well, I have to please this audience. And it's like, no, you can never second guess an audience. First of all, what you have to do is you have to be in touch with that listener that you are, the fan. Why did I play music? Because I'm a big fan of music. So obviously I have a huge catalog of stuff, not just the jazz stuff. I mean, my oldest brother, Ed, is six and a half years older. So when he was like 15 or 16, I was, you know, eight or nine, and he had Jimi Hendrix records, and he bought Led Zeppelin II the day it came out. And I was exposed to that at an early age, and I never thought about, you know, styles or, or whatever you want to call it of music. I remember listening to Abbey Road the summer it came out, you know, every day at my neighbor's house, and we bought monkey records and things like that. So, you know, that was me, the fan. And when I got involved in playing guitar, I still thought of what I liked to hear. So when I was younger and starting to kind of emulate people that I liked, I didn't try to copy them. I just tried to 
feel like I could do what I what would appeal to me through the premise of what I could play. And that's just continued on over the years. So at any given time when I'm playing Brad's Blues or The Lonely Road, mm-hmm. I might be hearing something totally, you know, unrelated to what people would think musically it is, but it's a sound or a a thing that I that inspired me to make music or that I liked as a fan. What is it about jazz that fascinates you? I think it's just that you are dealing with things in real time and you're telling a story. That's the biggest part of it that, you know, you're able to, you know, because you could play a melody of a tune many different ways. And I think that in itself is a challenge. You know, if I took a standard piece of music like the Days of Wine and Roses or something, there's many ways to approach playing that melody. You listen to Miles Davis. I think Miles Davis, when he played standards, was the epitome of what it's about to be a jazz musician because his interpretation of just the melody alone was just so brilliant. The way he played, you know, tunes that like, you know, Someday My Prince Will Come, which is from a Disney movie that you would never think, but he just had that sensibility to be able to do that. He heard melodies, and he was able to communicate that in a very, very direct way. Uh, I think that's the thing, too, is when you play... I mean, to me, I, you know, I love all kinds of music, and I'm a big fan of, of great lyricists, you know, and I, I love James Taylor and you know Bob Dylan and all these people that are very pro- prolific, but I never felt that my voice was something I could write lyrics or, or that kind of thing to, so I just decided that this is how I could express myself. And that's what I love about jazz is you could do that. You could take the guitar or your instrument and you can say something in a circumstance, whether it's with a trio, a duo, solo, whatever it is, and make your little statement. And there are many different ways to interpret it. And night after night, it's different. You know, I could play The Lonely Road, you know, um, in concert night after night. And, and there's something about it that's a little different each time. And that's the challenge, is that it really puts you in the moment of having to do something. And plus, there's other things. You know, there's the element of listening to what's happening when you're playing with musicians and responding, having a conversation. But you have to remember that um, I think regardless of what the music is, you have to include the audience as the, the extra member, meaning that if you're a quartet, that's the fifth member. And their presence is felt by us. And we give back. So there's a, like, if I'm playing just to myself, the audience, and I'm in the audience regardless of how big it is, but when there's more people involved, you, you sense that, you feel that from them, and that gives you something back to give back to them. So it's, uh, it's an interesting process. And I found that in the jazz world, or whatever you want to call that, um, I felt more comfortable and more at home. I don't, I don't know why, but that's just, that's just what it was, so... Speaking of the audience, you've had the unique perspective of having a lot of audiences around the world. You've gotten to travel, Europe, Japan. Has there any has there been anything that you've learned as a result of playing music around the world? Yes, I mean, music is truly uh the official language for everybody and it really transcends any culture. I mean, I've done festivals and concerts in Argentina, in uh, New Zealand, in Japan, in Europe, in Russia, all over the States. And one thing that they all have in common is is that your music transcends whatever the culture or whatever the language is. And that's kind of cool because, um, and the other thing too is that, you know, jazz as as a musical export is really the cultural export that we've given the rest of the world. But having said that, Many musicians from around the globe have added to that and given back. It's kind of like if you look at the blues, the blues, you know, was born and raised in this country, but the English guys, you know, like Eric Clapton and the Jeff Becks and the Jimmy Pages, they listened to that blues music when they were kids and they absorbed it so intensely that they went and made records in the 60s that resonated here to guys that never heard B.B. King or Muddy Waters. And through that, they discovered that. So... You know, there's a there's a nice thing about music. Everybody can add their piece, as I said earlier, and that's what's cool about this thing around the world is that as you go, you pick up things, like influences of different cultures come into the music, because obviously a lot of my stuff is 
as far as the titles are concerned, and some of the inspiration is coming from places that I've been to. And that in itself is, uh, is, is great. That's what I really enjoy about being able to do this. Regardless of genre, you talked about some of the guitarists that have influenced you. Mm-hmm. What about the composers? Well, composers, I'd have to say uh, a couple guys. Uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim, a Brazilian composer who's brilliant and um, wrote some amazing, you know, he was the father of the bossa nova and wrote some amazing pieces of music, which are still in awe about, and they're very, very complicated to play. I've recorded uh, a couple. Um, Henry Mancini is a composer that I really like, because not only, you know, the Days of Wine and Roses, but, you know, the Pink Panther and all the things he did for film. Paul McCartney, John Lennon, you know, those guys, too, are great composers. Um in the jazz world of the contemporary guys, uh, you know, Chick Corea and Joe Zavinal and, and Wayne Shorter. I'd have to also put um, Herbie Hancock in there. Of course, Matheny and Lyle Mays are guys that I look up to. But one of the guys that is probably the biggest influence on me compositionally is bassist Eberhard Weber from Germany. And Eberhard's music uh, was a big influence on, I know Lyle Mays, because I've talked to, and and Pat as well, Pat got to play with him, but I know Lyle was a huge fan. And um, I just love the way Eberhard composed. And Eberhard did something that was cool because he actually was combining classical elements with with improvisation. And I really, really resonated with me. And probably if you listen to the Batavia record, you'll hear a lot of the Eberhard influence in there. but he, he, there's a tune on my very first record that was influenced by him. It's called Pictures of the Past. So, you know, that's a guy that I could listen to all day. And I think, and then, of course, you know, Ralph Towner is a great composer, too. And you could go through the list of guys that, you know, wrote tunes over the years in the jazz genre. But but that's, you know, and then, of course, Bach and, and Mozart and people like that. Because my parents listened to classical music. My brother played classical piano as a kid. So we were absorbed by, you know, all these different kinds of things. Uh, Edvard Grieg, the very first piece of music I vividly remember listening to from start to finish was his piano concerto in A minor. I used to stand in front of the thing with a little tinker toy and conduct, you know. So, And that resonated with me as well still today, that that, that piece had a big influence on me. So... Would there be anything that you listen to, any, not necessarily an influence, but uh, maybe a band or an artist that we would be surprised to yeah, know? Yeah, I think, well, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Scorpions, you know? Um, and I'll tell you why, because when we went over to Europe in the early 80s to do our very first DBT tour, and we played all these clubs, we had a little EP with Warner Brothers, and, you know, we, we kind of got our feet wet. We had a, a Volkswagen van that had a cassette player that my brother bought, like a little boombox. And the only cassette that he could find in a record store was Love at First Thing, which was the Scorpions record. And he just happened to hear something on MTV, and he said, I had this Scorpions tune. So we just listened to that up and down, and, you know, I, I loved listening to those guys. I'm a big fan of Bad Company, too, you know, because I heard that as a kid, and Led Zeppelin, of course. But, yeah, I guess people would be surprised to hear that I listen to the Scorpions. Not, <laughs> not on a regular basis, but, yeah, you know, that's one of the bands that I, I enjoyed listening to. Well, David, how would you feel about playing another of your songs? Sure. I, I'd like to do one that's, this is kind of an unusual piece of music. This is one from The Lonely Road which kind of incorporates some of the things I was talking about, these different elements of music, and it's called Seat 3A. Thank you. 
All right. Very interesting song. Thank you. Yeah, it, it um, it's evolved over the years. It it started off as just a an improvised piece that I had done at a Joe Diorio clinic, and when it came time to do the record, I started to just think about an arrangement, and it's evolved since then. So, it's uh, it's a fun piece to play because it's always different, but but yet it has a, a similar theme. So, it started out. It almost sounded like samba or something. Well, yeah, I'm using some of the what the guitar can do. This guitar, this is a David Becker signature model from Heritage. This is actually the prototype from 30 years ago. It's We call it the Million Miler because I think we've logged about a million and a half miles of flying. And I can get different percussive sounds with it, and, and that is kind of nice to utilize that as sort of a percussion instrument and then see what happens. And then I can put the little piece of paper in there and get sort of a sitar sound. And it's uh, It's a very versatile instrument, so... How do you define good music? What makes music good? Well, I'd have to paraphrase what George Benson said. If it sounds good and it feels good, it's good. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a that's a you know an easy thing to say. But I mean, really, if if the musicians have something to say, if it has a good sound to it and a good feel, feel so important. I mean, musical feel is something that you know either you've got it or you don't, and you have to really develop that because. The, every kind of music that has resonated with people, regardless whether it's Brazilian or, you know, uh, R&B, blues, whatever you want to call it, there's something about the rhythm that really pulsates and pulls people in. And that's a very integral part of all music. And music is dialectic, meaning, meaning like languages. So each of those musical forms has a dialect, which is inherent in that music. And there's a if you go back to the tradition of uh, the African rhythms that came to this country, they spread out into all musics like uh, jazz, you know, blues, uh, Cuban music, uh, music from the Caribbean, music from South America. And that inherent feel that came from Africa is there. It's an underlining feel. And if you understand that and you're able to tap into that, it'll help you to develop a nice feel for your music. So that's kind of where I look at um, what I think defines good music. And it doesn't matter stylistically what people call it or, you know, what the instrumentation is. If somebody has something to say and they're able to present it in a very cohesive way, that's, that's cool. I would be curious to know what you think about the, the early American jazz, like going back to what they call now the American songbook. Well, it's a very important part of the tradition of jazz because, you know, if you go back to the 20s and to that period of time, they were writing show tunes and you had people like Jerome Kern and Victor Young, these composers, and of course the Gershwins, who were writing these incredible pieces of music. They were show tunes or they were in movies. And they weren't just popular because they were popular. They were popular because they were good pieces of music. They still stand the test of time. But I talked about dialects. So if you go back to the early part of that writing period when swing and ragtime started to develop, there was a certain amount of vogue to have dominant seven chords, which means that you'd have these kind of cadences. So you'd have things like... course you had songs like I Got Rhythm which um, has become a jazz standard with rhythm changes but you know the the dialect of the day was they had certain voicings and certain kinds of sounds of chords that were very in vogue and that set the tone for the guys to come after that who did the the bebop stuff who took those pieces of music and said well you know instead of playing that dominant seven like that if we put a flat nine in there and make it sound like this you know, give it a little like what Bach did, give it some color, some other kind of color. And that changed the whole face. I mean, today it's very common for us to hear things like that. But back then it was very unusual for the instrument uh, in instrumentalists to play that and to hear those kinds of chords because it wasn't really um, something they were used to hearing. But it, it became, then it evolved into the stuff that was after the bebop stuff, which was the 50s and 60s, whatever you want to call that cool jazz or whatever and the you know the monks and people like that Thelonious Monk and how they developed their harmonic sense but it really all goes back to Bach 
You know, it's like Bach is the guy or, or that period of, of writing and, and harmonic understanding that's still a tradition today. And you can hear it in all kinds of music. Um, he improvised. And I, I guess I read somewhere that his wife was the transcriber. She used to transcribe the things he would play. And, you know, um, he was improvising, but then it was written down. So there was a sense of like what jazz musicians do. You, you play something and then you kind of, you know, write it down or you play it and remember it. And those harmonies still transcend. But I mean, the, the Great American Songbook is so important because that set the, the tone for what became jazz. And without that, we never would have had what we have today. So that's a very important part of the, the development of the music. Do you have any dream project? Well, I have a project coming up, actually. The, uh, the record Batavia, which um, is it came out now back in 2010, that's a record that I wrote music about my mother's family story. My mother is Dutch Indonesian, and she was in a Japanese prison camp for four years in, in uh, what's now Jakarta, but then it was Batavia. And her father, her stepfather, her brother, her mother, and herself. And next year is the 75th anniversary of their release. So I'm getting together with the Metropole Orchestra from the Netherlands, and we're going to do a concert of that music, and we'll do it with the 50-piece orchestra playing all the tunes from Batavia from start to finish as a memorial or as a, a nod to them. And out of this project, we're going to... Um, some of the proceeds we're going to put towards a music scholarship fund, which are going to give a young student the opportunity to study with me and the Metropole Orchestra. And because I was just in Japan, and in Japan that story is not really known because they didn't really teach that much in their history, uh, I'd like to pick a Japanese student to come because I think that's a, a diplomatic way to utilize this opportunity of this horrific historical thing to bring something very positive out of it, uh, a musical... Um, you know, uh, scholarship for somebody who will be able to carry on the legacy of music. Cause I mean, music is very important and I'm not a politician, I'm a musician. So, you know, that was the best way for me to do. It's also to honor people like my mother that went through this, this horrific thing. And, and the Metropole Orchestra is uh, an amazing uh, group that has been around since 75 years next year. They play with everybody with Sting. They just did something with Snarky Puppy. They, Matheny did some stuff with them and, whole bunch of people if you look at their legacy but they're very very nice people and they were very ecstatic about doing this with me so i'm i'll update you on when the concert's happening it's probably august or september of next year i'll be seeing them in a couple of weeks when i'm overseas to to kind of hopefully get the venue s sorted out and uh we'll we'll release that that concert of a live uh, performance as well as probably a live uh either dvd or video or something like that as well how exciting yeah very cool yeah what is the best thing about being David Becker? Oh, <laughs> I, I guess the best thing about my life is that I get a chance to go to all these different places. I'm very grateful for the fact that I get to do this. I mean, I was lucky that I traveled the world as a child. My father worked for the airlines and my mother was European, so we would go travel to Europe every year. From the time I was two until I was about 10, I'd cross the Atlantic 18 times and We'd go for a month and visit my grandfather and my relatives, and my dad liked Austria, and we would drive around. We would usually go during the spring or the fall because it was easier to get seats because it was space available. And we'd go for one month, and they would take us out of school, and I never realized how much of an impact that had on me. But it was a huge impact on be becoming a musician because I knew right away when I was going to be a musician, I was going to travel. That was I tell my students... If you want to play music for a living, get a passport because you're going to need to go and travel. And I, I don't take it for granted. I've been doing this now for 35 years, and I'm so grateful for every opportunity I get to go anywhere I go and really try to be in the moment of, uh, you know, people say, you know, oh, the concerts are great and all this stuff. It's like, no, for me, every every moment of what I get to do, whether I get to sit and talk to you or I get to sit down with an old friend and, and have coffee, it's the same as if I'm performing for a thousand people. I don't differentiate it. It's just me being me and, 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 and what I do in my life. And I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do this. As I said, I, I don't take it for granted, so... I always like to end the interview by just giving the artist the stage. 
We just never know who's listening. And as you know, especially jazz being such an international thing, we don't know who's listening, where, when. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, I would say it's the most important thing is music is a very integral part of every society on our planet. And it is the one thing that really um, connects us all. And if you're in touch with that, whether you're a listener as a fan, or you play a little bit, or you play a lot, I think it's important to realize the significance and the uh, the beauty of what music is and what it has to offer. And if you want to just learn to play an instrument just to play a little bit at your house, that's fine, because your perspective will change once you start to play an instrument. I think it opens up part of our brain that we don't normally use, but everybody's kind of connected to that because there's an internal heartbeat of the, of the earth, how it spins, and that's something everybody feels when you get 60,000 people clapping on two and four for We Will Rock You, and probably half are not musical. Uh, get aware of that. Be aware of that that's such a, a big part of, of all the cultures, and that we have the opportunity today to really explore the music that preceded our generation in a way where we didn't have that opportunity years ago. There were recordings, but now you can just hit a button on the internet and you can go through someone's catalog within seconds and you can explore all these things, see television shows of performances of people that you wouldn't have seen normally because that wasn't available back then. So take advantage of the technology, but understand the significance of music and how important it is to our our well-being. Now, David, you've been very, very generous. First of all, agreeing to do this interview, coming out here, playing for us. its It's been a great pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me. I, I, I enjoy the opportunity to do this. So, But I have to ask one thing. Sure. I always like to end on a kind of sentimental note. Okay. Sometimes a little melancholy. Could you think of a a, a song maybe that you could send the the viewers and the listeners on their way with. Sure. Yeah, let me... uh... Thank you. You're very welcome. Za pa bi pa pa ba do na kji ba lu ti ki za de guji at ka se ki kalak pi na se de bo che ki ye ki pa ki ka ti ki tu ko ki ti to ki pu pi la ki tu ji ka de le vanga ka tu goodbye.